0: Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of the one, then by this time, tomorrow. May see As we continue talking about passion this morning, as we continue talking about what it looks like and what it means to have passion for the Lord, I would like us to consider the life of the prophet Elijah. Elijah was a prophet of passion. Elijah was a prophet. He was an individual. He was a person who was so passionate about the Lord Whenever we look at Elijah's life, we're able to see the fire that he had in his heart for the Lord because of that. Because Elijah was so passionate about the Lord, the Lord was able to work through him in amazing ways. The Lord was able to work through him in powerful ways. In fact, ways that were unprecedented in Old Testament Scriptures. Ways that God had never worked through anybody else before up to this point. Let me give you just a few examples of what I'm talking about. Whenever we first come to meet Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 1, the very first thing that we find out about him is that he stands before the wicked king of Israel, King Ahab, and he makes a very bold proclamation. You remember what the Bible teaches about King Ahab back in 1 Kings chapter 16? The Bible teaches us that King Ahab did more evil than all of the other kings of Israel before him put together. All of the other kings combined. He was a worshiper and a promoter of Baal. Perhaps you know his wife's name. We just read it in our scripture reading. He was married to Queen Jezebel. The first thing that we find out about Elijah is that he stands before this wicked king of Israel and he makes a very bold proclamation in chapter 17 and verse 1, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And guess what? There wasn't rain except by his word. James tells us in James chapter 5 and verse 17 that once He made this proclamation. It didn't rain for another three and a half years. Can you see Elijah's passion for the Lord? Can you see his boldness for the Lord? Wanting to promote the God of Israel over Baal, who King Ahab had caused for Israel to worship. He said, it's not going to rain throughout these years unless I say it's going to rain. Unless I pray to God and he causes it to rain. We see his passion for the Lord, promoting the Lord. When he made that proclamation in chapter 17 and verse 1, he did two things. First, he made the king mad. And second, he caused a major drought. So, how did God respond to that in Elijah's life? Well, we find, according to 1 Kings 17 verses 2 through 8, that God protected Elijah. The first part of 1 Kings 18 says that after Elijah made this proclamation to Ahab, Ahab was looking for him. Ahab wanted to kill him, but what did God do? God protected him. God put Elijah in two different locations where King Ahab would not be able to find him, where King Ahab would not be able to cause any difficulty in his life. But he didn't just protect Elijah, he also provided. For Elijah, God made sure that Elijah's needs were taken care of. In the midst of this great drought that lasted for three and a half years, God made sure that Elijah had food. He made sure that Elijah had water. He made sure that Elijah had a place to live. He first did that at a brook called Cherith. He was able to drink water from the brook. The ravens brought him food, meat, and bread. And then God commanded him to go to the house of a widow. And he stayed there for the remainder of the three and a half years. God protected him. God provided for him. But it's not just that. It's not just that God protected and provided for Elijah, and Elijah just sat back and received all of those things. No, God worked through Elijah. God worked through Elijah's life, through his hands, in ways that were powerful, ways that were unprecedented in the Old Testament time. If you remember the story in 1 Kings 17, verses 8-24, through 24, as Elijah is living in the house of a widow, the widow's son becomes very sick. In fact, she becomes, the son becomes so sick that he dies. You remember what Elijah did? He picked up the child, took the child upstairs, laid the child on the bed stretched himself out on the child three different times and prayed to God please restore life to this boy up to this point in the old testament scriptures there wasn't anybody who had raised anybody from the dead according to the old testament scriptures according to genesis up to first kings chapter 17 there was not a single individual who had been raised from the dead before What happened in this story? The text says that the little boy's life was restored to him. He was the first individual to be raised from the dead in history. And it was done through the hands of Elijah. It's not just that God protected and provided for Elijah. God worked through Elijah in ways that were powerful, ways that were unprecedented. One way that we see that is in 1 Kings chapter 18. Verses 19-40, through 40, this amazing story that's recorded for us. At the end of the three and a half years, Elijah once again goes to stand before King Ahab. King Ahab had been looking for him. King Ahab wanted nothing more than to kill Elijah. But at God's command, here, go, here he goes. He's standing before King Ahab once again, making another very bold proclamation. When Elijah comes into Ahab's presence, he doesn't automatically kill him, which I find interesting. Instead, he points his finger at Elijah and says, You troubler of Israel. In Ahab's mind, Elijah was the one who caused this great drought that had lasted for three and a half years. Elijah responds by saying, No, you're the troubler of Israel. You're the one who has taken Israel away from the Lord by promoting the worship of Baal. Elijah is pointing his finger at Ahab. Ahab is pointing his finger at Elijah. So Elijah makes a suggestion. He says, I have a way we can settle this between me and you, between the Lord and Baal. He says in 1 Kings eighteen nineteen, Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to all meet at Mount Carmel. I want you to gather all the people. I want you to gather all of the prophets who belong to these false gods. And let's meet up on Mount Carmel. We're going to settle it there. Whenever everyone finally got there, Elijah set the conditions for the showdown that was going to take place between Yahweh and Baal. He says, let the two bulls be given to us. And let them choose, talking about the prophets of Baal, the 450 prophets, let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I'll prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. You, prophets of Baal, call on the name of your God. I'll call upon the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire. He is God. There's the conditions. We're going to make this altar. We're going to put pieces of bull on the altar. You call out to your God. I'm going to call out to my God. And whichever God answers, He is God. Whichever God sends fire from heaven to ignite this altar, He's the one who we're going to worship. They agreed to the terms. So Elijah allowed the prophets of Baal to go first. The Bible says from morning till evening. From the morning till the time of the evening sacrifice, the text tells us, the prophets, 450 prophets of Baal, were crying out to their God. They were running around the altar like chickens with their heads cut off. The text says they were even cutting themselves. And blood was gushing out on them, trying to get Baal's attention. But we know the result. The Bible says very gravely in 1 Kings 18 and verse 29, there was no voice. For hours and hours, they tried to call out to Baal. They tried to get Baal to respond, a storm god, by sending fire from heaven to ignite this altar, but the Bible records there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. So finally, after hours and hours of the prophets of Baal having their time to call out to their god, Elijah calls Israel's attention to himself. He fixes the altar where... The prophets of Baal had torn it down. And he douses it with water three different times. Why do he do that? Well, what's supposed to happen? God sending fire from heaven to ignite the altar. You put water on it, it's going to be pretty hard to catch on fire, isn't it? So he douses it with water on three different occasions. He even builds a trench where all of the water can run into. He offers a very simple prayer to God. He prays, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, look for his passion in this prayer. Notice the passion that he has for promoting God, promoting who God is. He says, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I'm your servant and that I've done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Can you see the prophet's passion in that prayer? In promoting God over the idol Baal? As soon as Elijah finished praying that prayer, the text says in the very next verse, verse 38, that the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood and the stones and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. How would you have responded if you saw that? If you were standing to the side and all it took... Is for Elijah to pray a simple prayer and fire comes from heaven and consumes the altar. The text says that the people of Israel, the onlookers who were watching on Mount Carmel, they immediately fell on their face. And they began to worship the Lord. They began crying out that the Lord, He is God. Just like Jezebel had done earlier in 1 Kings 18, she took some of the prophets of the Lord and killed them, put them to death. Elijah takes the 450 prophets of Baal. They go down to a brook. Elijah puts them to death by the sword. Elijah was a prophet of passion. There's a lot that we could draw out of First Kings 17 and 18, a lot of different application points that we could emphasize. What I want us to see this morning, though, is this point, what we've been talking about over the last several weeks, about being passionate, being enthusiastic, that is exactly what we see in the life of Elijah. Elijah was passionate about the Lord. He had a fire in his heart for the Lord. And because of that, God worked through him in amazing ways. God worked through him in powerful ways. But then fast forward just a few verses. Fast forward just a few days to 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 3 and 4. When we read and study throughout 1 Kings 17 and 18, Elijah is so passionate for the Lord. We see his fire in, in his heart for the Lord. It's so obvious. It's so apparent in everything he says and everything that he does. When we come to 1 Kings 19, it's a completely different story. The Elijah that we see in 1 Kings 17 and 18 is not the Elijah that we see in 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 3 and 4. His passion for God had been killed. The passion that he had in the previous two chapters throughout the last three and a half years that we covered over the last few minutes, it's gone. It's nowhere to be found. Look at how Elijah is living. Look at his life in verse 3. He says, Then he was afraid. In contrast with his boldness and confidence that he had just a few verses earlier, here he's afraid. So what's he doing? He arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. That'd be about a hundred mile journey from Mount Carmel to Beersheba and Judah, from the northern kingdom to the southern kingdom. He fled. He ran away. Traveled that a hundred miles as quickly as he could. But that wasn't enough. He left his servant behind. He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die. That God would take his life. It's enough now. Oh Lord, take away my life. For I am no better than my father's. The Elijah of 1 Kings 17 and 18 is not the Elijah of 1 Kings 19. The passionate prophet of chapter 17 and 18 is an afraid, fleeing prophet asking for his life to be taken in chapter 19. His passion is gone, his passion has been killed. The number one question in my mind is what happened? What happened? What caused that spiritual breakdown? In between chapters 17 and 18 and chapter 19, what killed his passion? You remember what we read in our Scripture reading? First Kings chapter 19, verses 1 and 2 stands between what we've been talking about so far. The Bible says that King Ahab, after the events that took place on Mount Carmel, went back home and told his wife, Queen Jezebel, all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. He goes back and told his wife Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and puts a specific emphasis on how he killed the prophets of Baal. The 450 prophets who sat at her table. So Jezebel had a message for Elijah. Jezebel sent a messenger to him saying, so may the gods do to me And more also, if I don't make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Elijah, I want you to know, if I don't kill you in 24 hours, then I'm asking for the gods to kill me. I'm asking for the gods to do worse things to me than just kill me. If I don't kill you by tomorrow, Elijah, you have 24 hours to live. See, that's what happened. That's what killed Elijah's passion. That's the difference between the passionate prophet of chapter 17 and 18 and the prophet who's fleeing in chapter 19, asking for God to take his life. I think if we take it and boil it down, what we see is this. Elijah's passion for God was killed because he allowed a person, Queen Jezebel, to have more power in his life than his God. That's what happened. That's the difference. That's why his passion was killed. That's why he's running. That's why he's fleeing. That's why he's asking God to take his life. He allowed a person to have more power in his life than his God. Let's break that down just a little bit. Elijah's passion was killed, number one, because he allowed Jezebel's words to have more power in his life than God's words. What was Elijah? He's a prophet, so many different times God would have spoken to Elijah and spoken through Elijah, whether it's recorded for us in the Old Testament or whether it's maybe some times that weren't recorded in the Old Testament, this is what his life was all about. He was a prophet. God would speak to him. God would deliver words to him. And he would deliver those words to the people. God would speak to Elijah. And Elijah would live in obedience to the words that he was delivered. Do you know how many words Jezebel speaks to him in chapter 19 and verse 2? You go back to the original language. Fourteen words. Just fourteen words. Elijah allowed 14 words from Jezebel to have more power, to have more sway in his life than all of the words that God had spoken to him during his time as a prophet. But this isn't just about words, it's also about actions. Elijah allowed Jezebel's actions to have more power in his life than God's actions, and that destroyed his passion. It's true that in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 4, and also verse 13, Jezebel had killed prophets of the Lord in Israel. In fact, she had killed the majority of them. Only a hundred of them were left. They were divided up into two camps of 50, and they were kept in hiding so that Jezebel wouldn't kill them. Jezebel had killed prophets of God in the past, the recent past. But think about everything that God had done in Elijah's life. God had empowered Elijah to stand before King Ahab not once but twice to make very powerful proclamations. God protected Elijah, provided for Elijah for three and a half years, gave him everything that he needed, kept him from the wrath of the king. God worked through Elijah to raise a little boy from the dead. In chapter 18, God responds to Elijah's simple prayer by sending fire from heaven to ignite the altar with everyone else watching for everyone to see that he's greater than Baal. If you put Jezebel's actions and God's actions in the balance and you're just looking at this, which one is going to outweigh the other? It's a no-brainer, isn't it? Certainly, Elijah had killed prophets in the past, but look at everything that God had done for Elijah. You think that Elijah would allow God's actions to outweigh Jezebel's? You think that Elijah would respond to that threat from Jezebel in chapter 19 and verse 2 by saying, apparently you don't know who my God is. Apparently you don't know what my God has done in my life. But he didn't. He allowed Jezebel's actions... To have more power in his life than God's actions, to put it very simply, Elijah's passion for God was killed. Nowhere to be found because he allowed a person to have more power in his life than his God. Question that we need to reflect on Does that still happen today? I know, and I'm thinking of, a number of different individuals. A number of different stories. Maybe you are too. The stories are different in detail. But they're very similar in scope. See if this sounds familiar. You have a person who's passionate for God. A person who is a faithful member of the Lord's church. Oh, they're... Present every time the doors are open. They're involved in everything that's taking place. They're excited about Jesus. They're excited about being a part of Jesus' work. But then something happens. Maybe they go through something difficult in life. And somebody within their congregation responds to them in a way that they didn't like. Maybe somebody persecutes them, makes fun of this person for being a Christian. Maybe it's a person within the congregation or outside of the congregation that says or does something to them that they view in a negative way. And because of just that one exchange, they walk away from the Lord. They walk away from Jesus. They walk out those doors Never to return. What happened? What's the difference? A person who used to be so passionate about God, but now isn't passionate about Him at all. A person who used to be so involved and plugged in, but is now not involved or plugged in at all. What's the difference? That person allowed another person to have more power in his or her life than God. That person allowed another person's words or actions to have power over and to destroy that person's relationship with God. I know a lot of stories like that. Maybe you do too. This week, last week, and next week, we're talking about passion killers. Tools that Satan tries to use to kill our passion for God. Tools that Satan tries to use to extinguish the fire in our hearts for Jesus. Last week we talked about complacency. The second passion killer that I think we need to mention is people. Satan tries to use people to destroy our relationships with the Lord. Satan tries to use people to kill our passion for God, to extinguish the fire in our hearts for Jesus. Whenever we allow people, I think we learned this from the life of Elijah, whenever we allow people to have more power in our lives than our God, our passion for Him is going to be killed every single time. When we allow that to happen, when we allow what a person says to us or what a person does to us to have more power in our lives than what God says to us, in what God has done for us, what He is doing for us, what He promises to do for us, like Elijah and like many people that we know, we are going to spiral into a spiritual breakdown every single time. I want to know, whose fault is that? Maybe you're familiar with the story. Maybe you've heard this story before about a manager coaching his little league baseball team. They were playing a game one day, one Saturday afternoon. The center fielder was having a really rough game. He had missed several balls that were hit out to him. He had struck out a couple different times. So the manager marches out and he grabs the center fielder by the jersey. He He drags him back into the dugout and he tells him, you're done for the day hand over your glove. So the center fielder handed him his glove and he went out there and played center field. The umpires didn't say anything. So he went out and started playing center field. Well, the the first time that somebody hit the ball, they hit it out to center field. It was a grounder, took a bad hop, came up and hit him right in the mouth. The next batter got up and he hit a pop fly out to center field. And the manager was trying to track it down, but he lost it in the sun. That was until it hit him in the forehead. The next batter got up and hit a line drive. The manager was running at it with his glove extended, but he missed it. Hit him right in the eye. After three at-bats, he was bloodied, bruised, and frustrated. He ran back into the dugout, pointed his finger at the center fielder, and said, what in the world is wrong with you? You've got center field so messed up that I can't even do anything about it. Whenever we allow a person to have more power in our lives than God, it's going to kill our passion for Him every single time. Whose fault is that? It might be tempting in a conversation like this one to place the blame on the other person. Oh, it's not my fault. It's their fault. The reason I don't go to church, that church anymore is because they're just a bunch of hypocrites anyway. They don't like me. I, I don't like them. So why would I go back? The reason I'm not so passionate about the Lord anymore, the reason that I'm not as involved as I used to be, di- didn't you hear about what that person said to me? Didn't you hear about what that person did to me? The reason that I'm not as plugged in as I used to be, somebody made fun of me. I was persecuted for being a Christian, for living the life that Jesus wants me to live, and I don't want to go through that humiliation again. It might be tempting in a conversation like this one to point the finger. Oh, it's not my fault. It's that person's fault. They shouldn't have said that to me. They shouldn't have done that to me. If they wouldn't have said or done that, I wouldn't have walked away. But think about our manager. Was it really the center fielder's fault that he got hit in the face with the baseball three different times? Had the center fielder really messed up center field to where nobody was going to be able to play it that day? No, common sense tells us that the center fielder didn't do that. The manager got hit in the face three times with a baseball, and it was his own fault. In the same way, whenever other people's words, whenever other people's actions cause us to walk away from Jesus, It's not that person's fault. It's my fault. It's your fault. You know, in a perfect world, everyone would treat everybody with kindness. In a perfect world, everybody would live by the golden rule, treat other people the way that you want to be treated. In a perfect world, everyone would love their neighbor as they love themselves. You know that we don't live in a perfect world. People are going to persecute us. People, even brothers and sisters in this congregation, are going to hurt us. They're going to say things and do things to us that they shouldn't say or do. People out in the world, by their words and actions, are going to cut us to the very core of who we are. And I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I'm not saying that it's going to be painless. It's certainly going to hurt. And it's going to cause great difficulty in our lives. But if I allow what someone says to me, If I allow what someone does to me to cause me to walk away from the Lord, it's not that person's fault. It's my fault. My passion for God is not something that people take from me. What does Romans chapter 8 say at the very end of the chapter? No created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The problem is, we allow that to happen. Our passion for God, our enthusiasm for spiritual things is not something that people rob us of. It's not something that people take away from us. It's something that we willingly give up whenever life gets hard, whenever relationships become difficult. If I let go of my passion for God, regardless of what anyone says or does to me, it's my fault. It wasn't Jezebel's fault that Elijah was sitting under a broom tree asking for his life to be taken away. It was Elijah's fault. Elijah allowed, how are we stating that? He allowed Jezebel's words and actions to have more power in his life than God's words and actions, and the same is true for us. If we lose our passion for God because of what someone has said or done, we are allowing that to take place. Who do you allow to have the power in your life? Do you allow people to have the power to have the sway in your life? Or do you allow God to have the power in your life? Do you allow, do you reflect on, do you think about other people's words more than God's words? Especially when bad things happen, do you reflect on, do you think about other people's actions more Then God's actions, how He's been with us, how He's blessed us every single day that we've lived, who do you, who do I allow to have the power in life? When we allow God to have the power in life, then nothing is going to separate us from Him. Whenever we truly allow God to have the absolute power and the absolute sway in our hearts and minds, we're not going to leave. We're not going to walk away. It doesn't matter what anybody says. It doesn't matter what anybody does. When God has the power in my life, I'm going to stay. Whenever I'm persecuted and God has the power in my life, Matthew 5, I'm not going to walk away from Jesus. I'm going to rejoice in that. And I'm going to choose to endure that, to live under the weight of it. Whenever my brothers and sisters hurt me through their words or actions, I'm not going to leave the church never to come back again. Instead, in Matthew 18, I'm going to go to that person one on one, and we're going to sit down like brothers, and we're going to talk about this. We're going to hash it out because I love you and you love me like Jesus loves us. John, the 13th chapter. Whenever people out in the world cut us to the very core of who we are through what they say and do, we're not going to allow that to destroy our relationships with God. No, Matthew 5, we're going to pray for them. And we're going to bless them, Romans chapter 12, even when they curse us. Who do you allow to have the power in your life? I think this is what we get. This is the main idea from Elijah's life. Something that we have to stay away from if we're going to be who God wants us to be. When we allow people to have more power in our lives than our God, our passion for God will be killed every single time. So don't give people that power. Don't give people this power in your heart that they shouldn't have. Allow God to have it. Give that power to the Lord. It takes some self reflection. If I allow other people's words and actions to push me away from Jesus, was I ever really that close to Him in the first place? If what people say to me or do to me can push me away from the Lord, was that relationship ever deep to begin with? Maybe this morning it's a relationship with Jesus that needs to be deepened. Maybe this morning it's power that needs to be transferred from others. To the Lord, you can do it now, as we stand and as we sing. I hear the Savior say, Thy stream indeed is small.